The sermon text today is Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. The New Testament reading is Galatians 3, 29 through 4, 7. I would encourage you uh, to prepare yourselves even now uh, to put your thinking caps on. As someone used to say that all the time when I was growing up and I was trying to remember that, who, who that was. Thinking caps on, you know, you should always have them on, I guess, uh, when you prepare to listen to a sermon. But especially today, I have found myself saying over and over again, this is a really important text. This is a really important text. should not be surprising, given that we're going through the first portion of the book of Genesis. There are lots of foundational things. Um, but here, when we are considering the Abrahamic covenant, this is very foundational. And the Abrahamic covenant, as I will say later, is transacted in Genesis 12. Something else was said about it in Genesis 13. Here, Genesis 15 is very significant. The covenant is actually made all the way until chapter 17. If you want to understand the Bible, the story of Scripture, the message of salvation, you must understand the Abrahamic covenant. You must understand what it is and what it is not. And we're going to try to uh, do that today, to to lay a foundation for um, sermons that will come in weeks to come, but also for our understanding of the Holy Scriptures uh, in general. Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. And he said to him, the Lord, that is, said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, that, that is the Lord, uh, uh, but Abram said to the Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 through 4, 7. Here the Apostle Paul writes to the churches in the region of Galatia, saying, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, we, the children of, when we were children, excuse me, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He is here referring to that time when the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were under God's law, under Moses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord help us now as we seek to understand and to apply the scripture to our lives today. I think you would agree that most of the days of our lives are ordinary days. If a history were to be written about our lives, most of our days would not be mentioned because they are so common. Nothing particularly noteworthy happens on most of the days of our lives. And I'm sure the same was true for Abram. Most of his days were ordinary days. What he did with his time, I do not know for sure. The historical record does not tell us. But from time to time, we will have an extraordinary day. Uh, These are those days where something unusual and significant happens. Uh, For illustration purposes, I'll give the example of a couple being engaged to marry. This is a very significant moment, for in that moment, two individuals promise to wed. That day would probably be mentioned in a history of our lives if it were written. For that day is rightly considered to be an extraordinary day, and the proposal a significant moment. And Abram had plenty of those, didn't he? We're learning about those days as we go through the pages of Holy Scripture. Those days in which God called Abram and promised to give him land, to make him a great nation, and to bless the nations of the earth through him, were extraordinary days. Those were extraordinary moments. And so the Scriptures tell us about them. But there are some days that are more than ordinary and more than extraordinary Uh, These are those days in which something truly transformational happens. Uh, To use again the illustration of marriage, uh, the proposal is an extraordinary event, but the wedding itself, I think you would agree, is transformational. It changes everything. The engagement is a promise to wed, but it does not form a marriage bond. It is on the wedding day that a covenant is transacted, and it is the covenant that changes everything. The promise to wed is a wonderful thing, but it does not make a marriage. When the marriage covenant is transacted, the two become one. A man becomes a husband, a woman, a wife, a new family is formed. That moment is transformational. Ordinary days and extraordinary days pale in comparison to transformational days. For transformational days change how things are by forming something new. And the history books tend to focus on transformational moments and days. Abram certainly experienced some transformational moments. And I would argue that this moment, the one that is described to us here in Genesis 15, 7 through 21, was transformational. For it was on this day and in this moment that God entered into a covenant 
with Abram. Look at verse 18 of our text. It's there that we read. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, etc. By no means do I wish to minimize the promises that were made by God to Abram earlier. They should not be minimized. They are very, very important. They were extraordinary moments and important events. They should not be minimized. But note this, they were promises and not covenants. They were promises and not covenants. And by no means do I wish to separate the promises that were made earlier, the promises of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, 13, 14 through 18, and 15, 1 through 6. I do not wish to separate these promises from the covenant that was transacted with Abram as it is recorded here in this passage that we are considering this morning. They are certainly related to one another, just as the engagement and the wedding are intimately related, the one leads to the other, so too the promises made to Abram and the covenant that was made with him are related to one another. The two things, they go together. The promises made to Abram earlier help us to understand the covenant that was made with him. Here, I am only drawing your attention to the fact that promises are promises and not covenants. Covenants are more important than promises, for covenants formally change things. They are transformational. They establish new relationships formally. Are you with me so far? Uh, Brothers and sisters, covenants are very, very important in the Scriptures. I'm sure of this, that if we do not have a correct understanding of the covenants that God has entered into with man, we will not be able to understand the message of the Bible correctly. We will be often confused. God has made numerous covenants with man. He made one with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel through Moses, David, and with us through Christ. These covenants formally establish the relationship between God and His people. God relates to His creatures, but He always does so, always by way of covenant. It is imperative, therefore, that we understand them. I preach like this, teach, because it is important for you to understand the message of Scripture. And so I am, I am praying that you do not grow weary with this. 1 Timothy 4.13 actually insists that I do this, that I teach uh, the Scriptures to you. So please uh, bear with me, pay attention, uh, be diligent in the study of Holy Scripture. I want to say a few words about covenants in general before moving on to consider the Abrahamic covenant in, in particular. And so first a few words about covenants in general. What is a covenant? A covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment. That is how Meredith Klein has put it, and I think it is as good of a definition as any. It is a divinely sanctioned commitment. I I am, of course, talking about biblical covenants here, covenants made between God and man, and not, for example, the marriage covenant, or covenants made between man and man. A biblical covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment. God is always the one who takes the initiative in these relationships. What right does man have to say to God, Hey God, we're going to enter into an agreement with one another. I insist upon it. It's ridiculous even to think about it. These are arrangements and agreements that are initiated by God. They are divinely sanctioned commitments. Only God has a right to say that. Only God has a right to say to man, Man, we are going to enter into an agreement. And man, because he is God's creature, is bound to respond. 
That is why we say that a covenant between God and man is a divinely sanctioned commitment. A covenant clarifies the relationship between God and man. God says to man, this is how we are going to relate. It will be on these terms. It establishes the terms of the relationship between God and man. And it also threatens punishment upon the violation of the terms, whatever they are. There are different kinds of covenants, of course. Some we call covenants of works, and others we call covenants of grace or promise. And really, they are not difficult to identify and to distinguish. A covenant of works. In a covenant of works, God says to man, do this and you will live, or do this and you will die, or if you do this, then this will be the result, you see. What is required of man to receive the reward in a covenant of works? What what is required of him? The answer is obedience. He must work. He must obey whatever it is that God has imposed upon him. Uh, This was the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. It was a covenant of works. In fact, it was the covenant of works. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will die was the agreement that was made with Adam in the garden. And we saw how that went, didn't we? In Genesis chapter 3 and following. But a covenant of grace sounds different. In a gracious covenant of promise, God says, I will, and nothing more. What is required of man to receive the reward in a covenant of grace? What is required of man? Well, it is not works. There is nothing for him to do, for God has simply said, I will, but it is faith alone. Good works and obedience are expected, but not as the grounds for receiving the promised reward. A covenant of works says, do this and live, whereas a covenant of grace says, live and do this. It has been famously said. It's a different principle. In a covenant of grace, what can man do except receive by faith? The promises received by faith, the gift that has been held forth. The new covenant ratified in Christ's blood is a covenant of grace. In fact, it is the covenant of grace. What is required of us to receive the promised reward of this covenant, namely eternal life? It is faith alone. We must believe upon God and the Christ whom He has sent And even this ability to believe is a gift of God, we are told, by the Scriptures. There is nothing for us to do to earn the benefits of a covenant of grace, of the covenant of grace, for Christ has earned it for us. When we obey His law, which we ought to do, brothers and sisters, we obey because He has made us alive, not in order that we will be made alive. Do you See the difference, therefore, between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace? And do you see that the covenant made with Adam in the garden was the covenant of works and the covenant made with Christ, with Christ as the mediator and head? covenant made with us, the new covenant, is the covenant of grace. Listen to how our confession talks about the covenant of grace. Chapter 7, paragraph 2. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein He freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them what? Requiring of them faith in Him. 
that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. This is true. This is a wonderful summary of the clear teaching of Holy Scripture. The covenant of works was made with all mankind, with Adam functioning as a federal head or representative for all in the garden. And the covenant of grace is made with all of God's elect in every age with Christ functioning as a federal head or representative for all who believe upon His name. The covenants that are made with man between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Do you know the ones that I'm referring to here? From Adam to Christ, all of the covenants transacted between those two figures. Uh, They are neither the covenant of works nor the covenant of grace, but instead, not fitting neatly into either of these two categories, are mixed covenants. There is mixture in them. And I want for you to understand this this morning. Although it is difficult, and though we must work diligently to understand this, it is important that we do. On the one hand, the covenants transacted with Abraham and later Moses and David are all by God's grace. Wouldn't you agree with that? Think with me for a moment. Anytime God relates to fallen man, it is only by His grace. Fallen man does not deserve any kind of interaction with God, any kind of relationship with Him. Anytime God relates to fallen man, it is only by His grace. Anytime He promises blessing to fallen man, be it earthly blessing or eternal, it is an act of free grace. There is nothing at all in the creature which deserves God's kindness or blessing. When God enters into a covenantal relationship with fallen and sinful man, it is a gracious act. And these covenants, the covenants transacted with Abraham, Moses, and David, do contain promises, promises which will eventually be fulfilled by Christ in the covenant of grace of which He is federal head. All of this must be recognized. There is something about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic and the Davidic, that is gracious. It was by the grace of God that these covenants were made, and these covenants also contain promises that point forward to Christ and to the new covenant. But on the other hand, these covenants do require works if the people in them are to be blessed in them. This will become clear as it pertains to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. In that chapter, we see that a sign is attached to the Abrahamic covenant, and it is the sign of circumcision. There, the text uh, reveals to us the if-then pattern that I referred to earlier. The if-then pattern is characteristic of what kind of covenant? A covenant of grace or a covenant of works? It's characteristic of a covenant of works. If you do this, then I will do that. You must do something in order to receive the blessing. There the do this and you will be blessed principle emerges. In fact, there we will read, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. I don't know if you heard the works principle there. We'll consider that passage more carefully when we come to it in the text. For now understand that the works principle is there inserted into the Abrahamic covenant. Clearly the Mosaic and Davidic covenants have the works principle within them too. In fact, when we consider Genesis chapter 17, we will see uh, that if one was not faithful to apply the sign of that covenant circumcision, that that person would be cut off from the covenant, broken off from it. 
And this is why I say that the covenants that are made with man between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, I'm referring to the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants, they do not fit neatly into the categories of a covenant of works or grace, but there is a kind of mixture in them. And so I ask the question, how can this be? How can these covenants be, on the one hand, established and founded upon grace, but yet require works? I wonder if you remember last week how I said that we must get used to thinking of Abram in a double capacity. Does anyone remember that little comment? We must think of him in two ways, earthly and physical on the one hand, and heavenly and spiritual on the other. And here is why. The covenant made with Abram was a covenant of works as it pertained to his physical descendants and the nation that would come from his loins. What is that nation called? It is the nation of Israel. Soon we will see that if Israel was to be blessed in the land that would be given to them, if the people of Israel were to be blessed individually by God in an earthly sense, they had to keep God's law. Circumcision was a sign of this, among other things. If they broke God's law, they would be cut off from the land. In fact, we will learn as we continue to study the Old Testament in due time that Israel would eventually be sent away into captivity, would they not? And indeed, there would come a time where that old Mosaic covenant would be done away with altogether after the Christ came. So it is, in a sense, a covenant of works. But the Abrahamic covenant also contained promises, promises that were unbreakable, promises that would surely come to pass no matter what the people did or didn't do. In fact, God gave these promises to Abram before he gave him circumcision. And remember, Paul makes much of the chronology of this. This points in part to the obligation that Abraham's descendants had to obey God's law. And these promises all find their fulfillment in Christ and in the covenant of grace. Israel would be blessed in the land if they kept God's law. There is the works principle. But no one, not even the Hebrew, could be blessed spiritually and eternally by law-keeping. How can a man, Jew or Gentile, be made right before God, blessed to all eternity? We have already said that it is only through faith in the promises of God. All of that is contained within the covenant that was made with Abram and later Israel through Moses and David. These covenants have a mixture in them. They are, at the end of the day, covenants of works that can be broken on an earthly level. But the promises contained within them could never be broken. The promises are not contingent upon the obedience of man. God certainly would bless Abram. He would certainly make a nation out of him. And through him, he would certainly bless all the nations of the earth by the Messiah that would come from his loins. Nothing that Abram or Israel did or failed to do could disrupt that glorious plan. For it was set down upon the foundation of God's promise and not upon the foundation of man's faithfulness. God would establish his kingdom. He would establish the kingdom that was offered to Adam but rejected, the kingdom that was promised to Abram, the kingdom prefigured in Old Covenant Israel. This kingdom would be inaugurated by Christ at His first coming and will be consummated at His second. God will be king over His people. These He will bring safely home into the new heavens and earth by a Redeemer, Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God for His free and unconditional grace.
And so a covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment. That is what I am saying. There is a covenant of works with Adam as head, and there is a covenant of grace with Christ as its head. The covenants made with Abram and Israel through Moses and David were covenants of works as it pertained to the people's enjoyment of the land, blessing in the land. But they were also initiated by the grace of God, and they were permeated with the promises of God from the beginning, which can never, ever be broken. Now that I have said a few words about covenants in general, let us look at the Abrahamic covenant in particular. If someone were to ask you, where is the Abrahamic covenant found in Scripture? What would you say? Where is it found? I think the proper answer would be to say that it is found in Genesis 12. And it is there in Genesis 13 and in 15 and 17. This might sound strange at first. I think you and I are used to having a proof text in our pocket that we can just show to someone, you know. This verse shows the, 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 the Abrahamic covenant being transacted. But, but we must remember that the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that was made with Abraham, was established with him progressively and over time. In Genesis 12, God called Abram and promised to bless him, to bless those who blessed him and to curse those who dishonored him. There God promised to make Abram's name great, to make him into a great nation and to bless the nation of the nations of the earth through him. In 12.7, the Lord specified that he would give his offspring, the land of Canaan. That was all promised in Genesis 12. 1 through 3. In Genesis 13, these promises were reiterated. They were clarified and expanded. The Lord was more specific about the boundaries of the land. Also, the Lord was more specific about the greatness of His descendants. They would be as the dust of the earth, if one could number the dust of the earth. What are these? These are promises from God. These are promises made to Abram and to his descendants. In Genesis 15, 1-6, these promises were again reiterated, clarified, and expanded. Though Abram and Sarai were childless and advanced in years, Abram's very own son would be his heir, and not Eleazar of Damascus. And in verses 7-21, through 21, an actual covenant is made with Abram. Verse 18 again says, So on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and what did He say? He said, to your offspring I give this land. And he goes ahead and he deals with the boundaries of it. It is a promise, again, made to Abram. It is a covenant of promise. It corresponds to the promises made before, but it is also more than a promise because it is now, in fact, a covenant. Notice that more information was provided to Abram when this covenant was transacted. In verse 13 of our passage today, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What what is this a reference to here? If you know your Bibles well, it will be obvious to you. Uh, The rest of the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus and Joshua will will tell of the fulfillment of these prophecies. Abram's offspring would indeed be afflicted as sojourners. And this would begin, in fact, uh, with Abram's own son, Isaac. They would eventually go down into Egypt, 
where they would become slaves and they would be brought out again at the hand of Moses. And after wandering for a time, they would eventually be brought into the land that was promised to them with Joshua in the lead. All of this would happen after the iniquity of the Amorites, uh, that is a reference to the current inhabitants of the land of Canaan, was complete. In other words, God is saying, Abram, this will happen, but it will happen 400 years from now. from now. For now, I'm going to be patient with these peoples who are currently in the land. But there will come a time where my patience will run out, and I will pour out my judgment upon them at the hand of Israel, the nation I will form from your loins. That is what this is a reference to. Now I ask you, is this part of the covenant that we have just considered, is this part of the covenant made with Abram based upon works or upon the promises of God and His grace? The answer is it's based upon the promises of God and His grace. Look again at verses 13 through 16 and consider the words carefully. Is there any promise that is contingent upon Abram's obedience or the obedience of his offspring? Is there any contingency here in this language? Is there any if-then? The answer is no. It's all promise. It is purely a commitment from God to do something. God said to Abram, no for certain. The language used is, I will, and they shall, and you shall throughout this passage. This part of the Abrahamic covenant has the promises of God as its foundation. These things would surely happen because they were dependent upon God keeping His word and not the faithfulness of man. And the same is true for all that is communicated in chapters 12, 13, and earlier in chapter 15. These are promises of God, nothing more, nothing less. And there is something else in this passage that proves that the fulfillment of these promises are contingent only upon the faithfulness of God and not the obedience of Abram or his descendants. Uh, That this was a covenant founded upon God's grace and not upon the works of man was made clear in the vision that was shown to Abram. In verse 7, the Lord spoke to Abram saying, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is nothing new. It is the promise of God again reiterated to Abram. But in verse 8, Abram replies to the Lord saying, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This is not a lack of faith in Abram, but it is a request to have these promises that he has heard for so many years now confirmed and sealed. How am I to know it for sure, God? And how did the Lord respond? Well, as we will see, He cut a covenant with Abram to confirm His promises. This episode that we are about to consider sounds so very strange to modern readers. It really does. In verse 9 we read, And the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, that is a cow, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so Abram brought him all these, and cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. This is strange, isn't it? To our ears, at least. He made a kind of aisle way of carcasses. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Um, What is this exactly? What's going on here? These animals, all of which will be used in worship, in the worship of God under the old Mosaic covenant as sacrifices, were cut in two by Abram, and a kind of aisleway was created as one half of the animal was laid on one side and the other half on the other. It must have been very bloody. It must have been a gruesome scene. 
I think you agree with me there. Um, again, it sounds strange to us, but those who lived in Abram's day and those who lived in Moses' day would have known exactly what this was. This would have not been mysterious or puzzling to them. They would have known immediately that this was a covenant-making ceremony. They would have recognized it instantaneously. This was a covenant-making ceremony. This is precisely how people, particularly powerful people, rulers and kings, would make covenants with one another in Abram's day. If one king were to enter into a covenant or a treaty with another king, the more powerful king would first set the terms of the covenant, the agreement, and then both would walk together down a bloody and gruesome aisleway such as the one described here in Genesis 15 in order to confirm or to cut the covenant. It's kind of like a wedding ceremony, isn't it? Only a little bit more graphic. And here was the message being communicated. Here was the message. What has been done to these animals, let it be done to me if I fail to uphold my end of the agreement. That's what was being communicated. As these kings, these powerful figures, walked together through this gruesome aisleway where the carcasses had been divided, they were saying to all who observed the ratification of this covenant, what has been done to these animals, let it be done to me, should I fail to uphold my end of the, of the agreement. If I break this covenant, if I break or violate this treaty, then I deserve death. And so in this way, the hypothetical death of the covenant breaker, the hypothetical covenant breaker, was portrayed, symbolized by the slain animals. I think ceremonies are very powerful, aren't they? Wouldn't you agree with that? Promises are great. But when promises are put into force via formal ceremonies, it is a powerful thing. Engagements, wedding engagements are great. We're going to wed. That's wonderful. But when you gather people together and when an aisleway is formed and someone walks down it and those two individuals make vows to one another and enter into covenant with one another... The terms being clear to all who are witnessing. That's powerful. That makes something. That changes something. And that is what is being done here. But notice this. It was not Abram and the Lord who walked between the slain animals together. This is very significant. Who walked between the slain animals, these carcasses? It was the Lord alone who walked between them. And here is the point that is being made. This, this is a covenant founded upon promise. This is a covenant founded upon grace. If Abram and his descendants were responsible to uphold their end of the bargain to bring about the promises of God, then Abram would have had to walk down the aisle with God. But because God alone was committing Himself to the fulfillment of these promises, because God alone was responsible to fulfill His promises, the Lord walked alone while Abram did what? He functioned as a witness. He observed. Verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land, and so on and so forth. We have already read that. And when the sun had gone, gone down, it was dark, verse 17. Behold, a smoking fire pod and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, etc. The smoking fire pod and flaming torch were a theophany. They were a visible representation of the God who is invisible. They stood for the very presence of God, for He is in fact a refining and all-consuming fire. Were the fulfillment of these promises dependent upon Abram or of his offspring, both he and God would have walked between these carcasses. But because this was a unilateral covenant of promise, only God walked, for only He was obligated to uphold His end of the deal. I'm not going to spend much time on this because we will come to it again in Genesis 17. Uh, But it is important now to understand that the Abrahamic covenant is not concluded with Genesis 15. Though God made a covenant with Abram in that day, it is not all finished and brought to a conclusion here in Genesis 15. In fact, the Abrahamic covenant is expanded in Genesis 17. We will consider that passage in detail when we come to it. But notice that in Genesis 17, conditional aspects are added to the Abrahamic covenant. To quote my fellow minister, Sam Renahan, Genesis 17 is an expansion of the covenant because God expanded and enlarged it through a promise of royalty and a demand for loyalty. That has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? What is he talking about? Listen uh, to Genesis 17 again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You hear a bit of a works principle there, do you not? Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Notice this is again promise. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. There it is. We can call Abraham, Abraham, after we come to Genesis 17. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings. There's the promise of royalty. Kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you all, and to all of your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. It's all been promised so, promises so far, right? I will. I will, I will, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
all of a sudden we see that something has changed. What was once pure promise, pure grace, now we see has an element of works to it. Uh, this covenant ultimately at the end of the day can be broken. Someone can be cut off from it. So much can be said. It'll need to wait for another time. For now, notice that God's promise here is enlarged. Kings would come from Abram. Also, a positive law is added, the law of circumcision. Abram and his offspring were now obligated to keep this covenant. Every male was to be circumcised. It was to function as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. And God said, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This, the Abrahamic covenant in its full and final form, after it has been progressively revealed to Abram, is a covenant of works. A covenant of grace cannot be broken by us. For there are no demands for us to keep this covenant. The Abrahamic covenant in its full and final form was a covenant of works. Aspects of it could be broken. Again, how can a covenant be mixed? How can it consist of both law and gospel, works and grace, unconditional promises and stated stipulations? Put simply in the Abrahamic covenant, the promises pertain to certain things and the stipulations to others. There were some things that God simply promised to do. Abram would have a son. He would have many descendants. He would become a great nation. Kings would come from him. Abram would be blessed and would be a blessing. Indeed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. This would surely happen, for God had promised that it would. But circumcision was also given to Abram and his descendants as a sign of their required obedience to the law. This, too, was a part of the Abrahamic covenant. Abram and his descendants were to keep the covenant. To fail to keep it would mean that the individual would be cut off, separated from the earthly blessings associated with Abraham. The promises pertained to the accomplishment of God's plan for redemption. That's what the promises pertain to. The requirement of obedience to the law of circumcision was given to Abram's physical descendants only as it pertained to their personal enjoyment of the blessings of God and the land that the Lord was giving to them. Salvation, that is to say, the forgiveness of sins and the promise of life everlasting has only ever been possible by faith alone in the promises of God concerning the Christ who would come through Abram's loins, who would defeat the evil one himself. I hope you're able to track along with me in this, brothers and sisters. I know it's a lot for me to dump on you all at once, but this distinction between Works and grace and understanding properly the nature of the Abrahamic covenant is going to set us up for understanding the rest of the story of redemption, the rest of Scripture aright. I want to make some application at this point. Brothers and sisters, there are some texts of Scripture that should move us to do certain things, to behave in a certain way. I suppose the practical application to be drawn from this text would be to say, Believe upon the Christ who came from Abram's loins. Believe upon the promises of God concerning Christ that has come from Him, for He is the Savior of the world. That is what you are to do in response to this passage. But there are other passages of Scripture that seem to engage the mind more than the will. The purpose of those texts being to affect the way that we think 
And this is one of those passages. My deepest concern as I minister this text to you is to have you understand what it is saying so that you might know the message of Scripture. I'm thoroughly convinced of it. If we do not understand this text and the covenant that was transacted with Abram, then we will have a very difficult time understanding the story of the Bible, the nature of the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood, and our salvation in Him. And so that is why I have urged you repeatedly today um, to think and to understand about what Scripture is saying here. I want to conclude now with three brief statements concerning the Abrahamic covenant in an attempt to bring all that has been said together in a clear and understandable way. You've noticed that you do have an outline in your bulletin today. You're thinking, when are we going to come to these points? I've saved them for the very end. I want to bring it all together for you here so that you might think clearly about the Abrahamic covenant. The first point is this. Please understand that the Abrahamic covenant was the Abrahamic covenant and not the covenant of grace. Sounds like a strange point to make. It's a negative one. The Abrahamic covenant was the Abrahamic covenant and not the covenant of grace. This needs to be said, given that it is very common for Reformed theologians, very good theologians, by the way, but it is common for Reformed theologians of the Paedo-Baptist variety. What does Paedo-Baptist mean? Those who baptize infants. To say that the Abrahamic covenant was the covenant of grace, that it is the covenant of grace in substance. They claim that it was a unique administration of it. You can see the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, for an example of this way of talking. In fact, their argument for applying baptism to children, to the children of believers, hangs upon this principle. They reason like this, if circumcision was given to infants under the Abrahamic administration of the covenant of grace, then it follows that we should give baptism to the infants of believers under the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. The two things mirror one another, they, they assume. There are many problems with this line of reasoning, but here I am content to say that the Abrahamic covenant was clearly not the covenant of grace in substance. It was something different. It is its own thing. What is the covenant of grace? What are the promises and conditions of it? To state it very briefly, in the covenant of grace, God, and this is our confession, freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring faith in Him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. That, that's a good definition of the substance of the covenant of grace. And while we all agree that this promise, the promise concerning the covenant of grace, is contained within the Abrahamic covenant, the substance of the Abrahamic covenant is different. Notice that Abraham was the head or representative of the Abrahamic covenant. Who is the head and representative of the covenant of grace? It is not Abraham, but it is Christ. The, the promises made to Abram, which make up the substance of the Abrahamic covenant, they apply to him and to his offspring in a way that they do not apply to those who are partakers of the covenant of grace. You are in, uh, you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are under the covenant of grace. But to which one of you has God said, I will give you this land? I will give, are you following with me? To which one of you who are partakers of the covenant of grace has, has God said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you many offspring. 
I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless the nations through you. That's the substance of the Abrahamic covenant. Has God said that to any of you? Has He said it to anyone else besides Abram? The answer is no. All that is substantially a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And the, and the answer is that that does not apply to any of us in the way that it applied to Abram and his offspring. Furthermore, it has already been demonstrated that the Abrahamic covenant was breakable. Its members could violate it and be cut off. Genesis 17 says so. But this is not so with the covenant of grace. Can the covenant of grace be broken? It cannot. For it is founded upon the graciousness of God, the promises of God, the work that He has accomplished for us. It is a covenant of pure grace founded upon the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. It cannot be broken. Friends, these two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood, are substantially different. Yes, they're related, but they are substantially different. The Abrahamic covenant was its own thing. Second, understand that the Abrahamic covenant would in due time give birth to the old Mosaic covenant. I'm going to keep my remarks about this very brief. We'll adjust this again when we come to Genesis 17. For now, I want you to get used to the idea that the covenant that God transacted with Abram would grow or develop into the covenant that God transacted with Israel in the days of Moses. Notice again that circumcision was the sign and seal of the Abrahamic covenant, and it was also the sign and seal of the Mosaic. This is because the two are organically connected Notice that in the promises made to Abram in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, they all mention the birth of the Israelite nation. The Abrahamic covenant was pregnant with the Mosaic covenant from the beginning. It would grow into it in due time. All of this can also be said about the relationship between the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. All you have to do is read the Old Testament and see the way that Israel itself spoke of its own history. They constantly refer back to Abram to Abraham, and to the covenant that was transacted with him as their root, as their origin. So the Abrahamic covenant would give birth to the old Mosaic covenant in due time. The Mosaic law would be added to the law of circumcision that was imposed upon Abram. Third, understand that the Abrahamic covenant would, in the fullness of time, give birth to the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, ratified in Christ's blood. This is what the promises of the Abrahamic covenant ultimately pointed to. Some of them did have to do with earthly things. The possession of land, many physical descendants, the Israelite nation, that is all true. But they ultimately pointed to this, that is to Christ and to the work that He would accomplish and to the rewards that He would earn and freely offer to others. This is the way that Paul talks about these promises. He says, All the promises of God find their yes in Him that is in Christ. This is the way that Paul read the Old Testament. And he was good at it. Peculiarly inspired by the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? Moved along to write what he wrote. He read the Old Testament and he considered the promises of God made to Abram contained within the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. He considered those promises, also the ones announced by the prophets themselves. He said, they all find their yes 
in Christ. They all land on Him. He, he is the one who fulfills these promises. And then He says, this is why it is through Him, through Christ, that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. The Abrahamic covenant would, in the fullness of time, give birth to the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, ratified in Christ's blood. Though the Abrahamic covenant was not the covenant of grace, the two things are not the same in substance, this we have already discussed. The Abrahamic covenant was surely pregnant with the covenant of grace. And know this for certain, it is only by the grace of this covenant, the covenant of grace, that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, now being utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. That is London Baptist Confession, chapter 7, paragraph 3. How was Adam saved? By believing the promises of God that pointed forward to the Christ. How was Abram saved? How did he have his sins forgiven? How was he declared righteous? We've already talked about this. By believing in the promises of God that were declared to him, that found their yes in Christ Jesus. How about Moses? How about David and all they represented? It was by faith in the Christ who was held out before them in the form of promise, never by works. And how are we saved today? By looking back upon Christ and His finished work and believing upon Him, saying, God, I am utterly incapable of being accepted by You because I am a lawbreaker. But because Christ came and obeyed Your law perfectly, died in the place of others, shed His blood to atone for sin, rising again, defeating death, ascending to Your right hand. Because of all that, because He has earned the new heavens and the new earth, because He has earned life eternal, not for Himself only, but for others, we believe upon Him. We are utterly incapable of being accepted before you, God, but you have provided a Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. Let us bow together in prayer. Father, may we always be found believing upon Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this local congregation that you would give them patience to listen to sermons such as these that are filled with factual information that are certainly uh, teaching in nature. Lord, um, give them patience. Uh, help them to see the value of it, Lord. Give them clarity of mind as it pertains especially to the covenant you transacted with Abraham so long ago. May we understand what it was and what it wasn't. May we understand how it developed, how it pertains to your plan for the redemption of your people. God, may we learn to read your scriptures correctly. May we look to the scriptures from beginning to end as our source of truth. May we be found believing upon Christ. This is our prayer, Lord. Help us, we pray, by your word and by your spirit. In Christ's name we say these things and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.